Welcome to season three of the Jesus Said Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hey, Brett, I'm starting a podcast. Oh, is that how you're going to do that? You like that? Did you? Because you usually start it with like, hey, Emily. Or, yeah, hey, but Emily. you like to like totally go off the book and do things like, ooh, I'm starting the podcast. <laughs> so Try original. and cute. Yeah. I do. And it throws you, you off. And it's hard to huh. throw you off. It is totally hard to throw me off because I'm dial- I'm always dialed in. I may not well, look like I'm dialed in at times. I may be looking around like not paying attention and you think I'm being all aloof and whatnot, but I am always zeroed in on what is happening. It it yeah. You you can you can pull pull it together pretty quickly. I will say that. If you're not dialed in, you sure can pull it together in a pinch. How are you doing today? <laughs> Pray tell. Pray tell. That's a little illusion uh, uh, coming See, up, a little I'm foreshadowing. Did you like that? Um, I am doing okay today. So we have one of our access graduates who is on hospice care. Yep. And we just got that message. So we are going to be helping her transition into her best life. And um, I'm learning just so much about death and suffering and presence and rituals. And I'm learning how to honor these very embodied practices in order to help move us and transition us along in life. And that sounds really like mystical and woo-woo, but I, it's it's in the scriptures and it's ancient and it's uh, valuable. So I am going to be, I'm excited in some ways. It sounds weird to be excited. Um, I'm sad and yet I am so excited and grateful that our community is here for her because she could have been anywhere when she could have been in a rehab. She could have been on the streets. Um, There's multiple times in her life where she could have been taken out and, and not made it with alone, you know, without a tribe of community and sisters around her. And I'm just grateful. I'm grateful. And, and um, so it's, yeah, it's been a, a crazy couple of days so well we can just you know it's 2020 i know we're all learning right? all kinds of crazy new things in 2020 i know so. i know and i'm excited about our guest on the podcast today because who is on today she who? well her name is tiffany bloom and i actually met tiffany via ash abercrombie who we've had on the podcast before um, and Harmony, who we've had on the podcast before. And so um, I kind of started following her, started listening to their podcast, started learning her voice and kind of her the space she takes up in the world and kind of what she's doing. And I just thought, you know, like she's no stranger to tough stuff. Um, our guest today is an author, a speaker. Um, she writes for Today Parents. She also has three books. Uh, her third one's on the way. She has a multi-ethnic family. Um, she is passionate about justice and about empowering women. And it just made sense to have Tiffany and hear uh, what she's doing and hear all about the new stuff going on. So welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Yeah, so glad to be here. here. 
So glad to be here. I'm so glad to. Well, tell us, tell our audience, if they don't know who you are, tell us about um, just the space you take up in the world. What do you do? What are you about? What are you passionate about? And what's going on? You got it. I'm an author, speaker, and podcaster. I co-host a podcast with Ash Abercrombie called Why Though? Answering the existential crisis curiosities of life, everything from systemic racism to your favorite frozen pizza, because there's room to talk about it all. I live in the Seattle area, and I'm an adoptee, adult adoptee, and I'm also an adoptive mama, so kind of walked the journey of coming into my own and finding my identity, um, not as an Indian in India or an Indian in America, but really a, a woman of the kingdom, um, especially when I did not have that first culture and first family to shape and form my identity. Mm-hmm. I have really, really um, enjoyed spending my life on serving women, whether that's mm-hmm. been women who have been sex trafficked, whether that is women who are working to reunite with their children after the children have been removed from their home, whether that's teen mamas, um, women's equality and women's voice and place in the world, I'll spend my life on that. It matters so much. And as somebody who is a minority, as somebody who has been othered in professionally, personally, spiritually, um, I see the value in standing for women. Mm. Have you always been based in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah. I I was adopted um, just shy of my second birthday from New Delhi, India. And grew up in the Pacific Northwest, love the evergreen trees. I love the rain. I love the mountain views. It's my jam. Um, For a brief time, I lived abroad in London and also very much loved that. Uh, It was beautiful, (laughs) beautiful. I thought I could stay forever. I don't know if there's a more majestic city in all the world. Is it not true that New Delhi is now referred to as Mumbai? No, you're thinking Bombay? Bombay oh, is now referred it, to as. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I thought I was going to really throw a zinger out there like I knew what's happening in the world. And I you didn't, though, did you? Texas. It's okay. Awesome. <laughs> See? Space for all of well, us. Well, okay. The, the other one that's changed, Calcutta is now Kolkata. K O L K. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. New Delhi, capital city. And it's you know what's crazy, Brett? What's wild about New Delhi? So there's 26 million orphans at any point in India, right? So it's just, it's, it's a ton. The woman who took me in at two days old, she tracked me down two years ago through the Facebook. She tracked me down. Can you believe that? Are you serious? She tracked me down. She, she didn't know my adopted name. I know it was, it was, I gotta be honest. If I wouldn't have found Jesus before that, that would have been my moment. It was, it changed me. I'll never be the same. It was beautiful. Okay. Like, did you immediately my... recognize her? Um, oh, I just got chills even thinking about it. So she had been looking for me for 10 years. She took care of <sighs> 600 kids in her time at this orphanage, but I was one of the only babies she had ever received. And for two months before I was dropped on the doorstep as an infant, two days old, she had this insatiable desire. She was a believer in a Sikh orphanage, which Sikhs are very, very social justice driven. And uh, she had this insatiable desire uh, for a baby to take to care for a baby, and she, you know, her kids were eight, nine. So she was like, "What is going on, Lord?" And then she remembers the knock at the door, and they said, "We have this baby for you." And she named me Abalasha, which means desire. And so she cared for me, wore me. So it wasn't the traditional orphan experience when you think of Indians, uh, orphaned babies in India, right? Um, 
and she held me, took care of me. Her daughter would often um, climb in the crib with me and, and, and be with me. And so when I was adopted, she's thinking, I'm never going to see this baby again. And imagine two days old to two years old and knowing Whoa. I'm never seeing this baby again. So her daughter works, uh, she's a professor in the Midwest, and she went to a Christian college in America, um, and that gal had heard me speak at an event, and so we were just acquaintances on Facebook. So 20 years ago, her daughter went to college, 20 years ago, you know, um, in Minnesota, and uh, said, hey, we're looking for this girl. We think she got adopted to the North to the Pacific Northwest. We think her name's Brittany because of why she's, you know, it was the 80s, right? Of course, her name was Brittany. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, Stephanie, um, Brittany. Tiffany. Yep. They're all 80s names. <laughs> um, and she said, well, I know of this girl. She's a speaker. She's a writer. I've heard her speak. She's Indian. She was adopted around the same time you're looking for her name's Tiffany. And so um, she's like, let me let me reach out to this girl. And I had seen on documents the name of the woman who took me in. Her name is Prem Gideon. And so this person reaches out. She's like, hey, I heard you speak at this thing. My college roommate from 20 years ago's mom thinks she took you in at two days old. And I said, well, what's her name? And she told me her name. And I said, that's her. It's most certainly oh, her. Oh, my gosh. I just got So she was, she, she was visiting Seattle from, from New Delhi. Uh, to visit her niece, who was an executive in healthcare, Indians in healthcare, you're welcome. And so we, she had 25 minutes before her flight. Um, so I met her at a Starbucks right by the airport. And when she walked in, she said, Abalasha, all wow. I ever wanted was for you to know the life-saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's been my prayer from day one. And um, I had my baby on my hip, my only biological relative that I know, on my hip. And I said, oh my gosh, and this is my son. And so she got to lay hands on my son. It was a really beautiful moment. It was, you know, your body knows, doesn't it? It was wild to feel so at home with somebody that um, was so foreign as an adult, but Mm. in my subconscious, was it it was something was just unleashed. I will say, (laughs) throughout our conversation, she kept sliding back into Hindi. I do not speak Hindi. <laughs> so I was like, bring it back, back to English, please. Um, so it was, a, it was a really beautiful moment. And that was the first time I had ever heard the story of my beginning. So I was 32 years oh. old at the time. And she was like, let me tell you your story. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't have a story. I didn't have a beginning. And you know, as a, as an orphan, you make up the most romantic fantasized story you can, because you want to feel like you were here on purpose and so yeah. to have a story, it felt like it felt like the Lord was pulling back the curtain and I got to see the orchestra. I got to see how mm. everything was working together. It was a really beautiful moment to hear, yes, you know, she had this knock on the door and then she held me and, and she wore me every day for months and months and I wasn't left in a crib to to cry alone. There was somebody there. So it was really beautiful. Really and now we're connected. Your- yeah, and she yeah. really was your first mother. Yeah, she mm-hmm. was just that attunement. I mean, and I'm sure when you did get to receive a hug from her, that even your body oh, knew yes. that it hug. Did and I'm not, I don't that I don't lean that way. That like, ooh, I felt yeah. it. I do not. That's not that's not my mo. But right, Emily, I felt it. There was it was oh something. That felt so well, at it's home. biological. It was yeah, biological. It's, it's I was wired biological. to love her and receive from her. It was beautiful. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Tiffany, what 
Man, I mean, we could just stop there. I just feel like that is for someone listening right now who has felt so forgotten, who has felt so on the outside, who doesn't know their beginning and has been trying to recover it for years and years and years. Um, what a, you know, wow, what a testimony to God orchestrating your purpose, your identity, your belonging. I mean, even your name. Whoa. Yeah. Like your, the name, what she called you. What, what was it? Desire? Abalasha means desired. And the idea that I was in utero and the Lord had prepared her heart, like, what? That that just, I could never deny the goodness of God. And I think a lot of us, we decide, okay, life's a crapshoot, but God can redeem the past. But what if He was there all along in the shadows? What if He was working and molding and making? So for me, it really, it altered my understanding of the divine in such a profound way of who he is and how he works and what time means to him. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. I'm learning uh, cuz I've I've definitely tried to do that. Like I don't know if you're into Enneagram, but I'm oh, yeah. 100 I'm 100% an Enneagram 1. I like order. I like things I even like concepts to be ordered though. I'm really drawn to mystery and I'm drawn to big vision. Um I really don't like the aspect of there's an undoneness to God. There's, there's kind of this mystery that we we're we're here on this earth and we can't see it. And we're constantly trying to figure out like, how does our past fit with our future? We'll find then I'm just going to rewrite it, but we actually have to kind of go back through the hard stuff. We have to go through the dark in order to really have a full picture of, yeah. of what God's doing in our life. And I don't like that. Like I just, I just feel like I'd rather go, okay, cut that off and moving on, you know, or here's how the story ends. Let's just focus on that. And instead, I think the mystery that God invites us to is to say, like, even in your despair, even in your loneliness, even when you felt forgotten, that's exactly the seedbed. That's exactly because what you grow there is the gift to the world, Come on. is the gift to yeah. others. I mean, it heals, it restores, mm. it redeems, it has a prophetic message to it. It's dry bones oh, coming wow. to life, that's you right. know, and that's exactly what you're preaching on. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, I think you're all, preaching right now. yeah, I was going to say, Emily, you could take this home, girl. I'm listening. Um, I think depending on our faith community or, the conditions of our salvation uh, by those who introduced us to the faith, we can often feel like if it's hard or if it's full of despair, it's wrong. That experience is wrong. If it's hard, it must not be of God. If this is painful, God's not in it and nothing could be further from the truth. I think it's so counterintuitive to, to believe that God is just, as you said, mysterious, majestic, messy, nuanced. Um, we just love those straight, clean lines in life, and that's not yeah. the God we serve. So, when did you? When did you growing up? So you're adopted at two, and when did you know? You said I've always, or I'm so passionate about justice, passionate about empowering women. Is that? I mean, obviously, we know that that seedbed of justice was in you, but did you have an awareness of that at an early age? Did you have a draw to justice and being a part of renewing and making things right? Or um, 
did it feel like everything was just super far off for you? Yeah. I think when you are on the outside looking in of majority culture and you're pushed to the sidelines because of what you look like or your background, um, it builds compassion. I think it could build resentment or compassion and it made me tender and it made me soft. Um, also just within my adoptive family, my oldest sibling is, um, profoundly disabled, um, due to Mm. some mismanagement on the doctor's part. So he was Mm. born neurotypical and he's got the brain capacity and activity about of a 10 month old and lives in a group home. Um, and again, it was by doctor mismanagement. So there was a lot of tenderness and sensitivity to having a very high special needs person in our family. And then also the Brown child in a white community. So I think Mm. the compassion came from being othered um, and I thought, man, if if others feel like they're pushed to the sidelines, um, you know, kids in school saying they couldn't be friends with me because I was brown and you sit down at the lunch table and everybody leaves because um, they've yeah. never, ever seen a person of color. Um, and it wasn't this overt racism. It was the little microaggressions that add up, those yeah. micro traumas. Um, and so I would say as I came into my understanding of who Jesus is, it was like game over for me. I'm like, I'm welcomed here. I am welcomed at the table of faith and this changes everything. So I was able to kind of match that compassion that was God given with the the place at the table of faith. And I was off. I was off to the races. Yeah. So um, how old were you? I would say high school is when I really, really came alive. And also seeing, you know, I grew up in the time, there wasn't a Mindy Kaling or a Padma Lakshmi. There wasn't even the Kardashians, you know? There was no representation. Um, There was no Indian dolls. They just came out with an Indian Barbie like a year and a half ago. Year and a half ago. Yeah. 1.7 billion Indians. And they came out with an Indian Barbie a year and a half ago, y'all. Okay. (sighs) Anyway. So no representation. And I'm like, where where is my spot in the world? Where do I fit in the world? Um, and I thought, well, I can help and I can serve and I can love people and I can encourage mm. and I can spend my life on that. Oh, wow. When did you uncover this kind of gift of writing? Was that always a part of who you were as a little girl, as a teenager? When did yeah. that awaken? Um, I would say at the same time, speaking did as well. I, again, it, when my confidence in Christ grew, my gifts grew. And so in I did Running Start, which in Washington State, if you can pass the entrance exam, the government will pay for your AA in high school. So you can go to community college your junior and senior year. Okay. And I, I knew that there was no money set aside and I would not be able to get a loan for college. Um, so it was my only chance to do higher education. So I got a job at the community college grading English papers. Um, so I, I just, I, I was a very voracious reader growing up, even in third grade, just devouring, devouring books. Um, so I think that's what made me a great writer was I was an avid reader um, and, yeah. and working with the English department to help um, grade other papers and uh, it, it it flowed out of me. And you know, back when MySpace notes, that's where I would, I would first blog oh, before yeah. blogging was like a thing. Um, but I would say my writing has always been second to speaking. I knew I, I knew I had the gift of communication pretty young and I wanted to exercise that in a way for maximum impact because I knew mm. people think differently when they're presented with new ideas. 
And when it comes with testimony, people are open to think differently. So um, writing and speaking have always been hand in hand for me. And I feel most myself when I'm able Mm. to exercise that. So writing Bible studies or... Um, you know, blogging when that was a thing, um, mm-hmm. uh, writing for the Bible app, different things like that. I've, I've totally enjoyed being able to exercise mm. that. Have you always yeah. lived in the Pacific Northwest? I asked her that already. You did? Yes. Yeah. And I lived in London for yes. a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember London, of course. My, my yeah. point in asking that question is you never lived in the South, correct? No, but I do have a little bit of a love affair with the South. I don't well, know why. Oh, what? I don't Texas know why. I just love it Correct. so much. What? Texas to be exact. Uh, I think Austin is probably the most delightful city in America. I, I'm in I love was in Austin, Austin last night. Were you? What? Where are your? Where's HQ for you, Brett? And uh, well, I I am originally from Houston, but we live in Waco. Ooh. You live in Waco. Yeah, so we did know this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's like an hour, I heard you know, go. An, an hour south is Austin, an hour north, or hour, hour and a half. An hour and a half south is Austin, an hour and a half north is Dallas. And Texas is so big, depending on the corners that you go to and the cities that you go to, you know, it's every, there's a different dialect, there's a different, um, totally a different culture yeah east texans are very different than west texas yeah i'm from a small town in east texas closer to louisiana and so it has more of a true southern flair like like manners and okay prestige and kind of home like deck like southern living yeah like i'm hearing decorating yeah, yeah. your home okay. hospitality like, is that. important is it is imp- hospitality you know big meals um yeah like pressing the linens um you know i, I mean i don't know grandma initials embroidered made, on everything initial lots of initial embroidery on i smocking, learned about how big a deal yeah. initials are from reese witherspoon <laughs> She talked about how people oh, out gosh. west don't understand the <laughs> how big of a deal it is to monogram every stinking yeah. thing. Like it's a Ugh. big southern deal. It's crazy. I love it. Well, listen, yeah. I'm from the it's, south, and I don't get it either. But you know, whatever. Well, um, and and that's the thing is that Houston, where Brett's from, even had a more international. It's more right. diverse, and yet his family was pretty darn country. They because they were they before they got to Houston were kind of country folk. Well, they and, ate um, squirrel. Yeah, they ate squirrel dumplings. You know, okay. shoot the squirrel and. It like <laughs> when I think of Houston, I think of Beyonce. So that's why I think that's gonna oh have an international gosh. flair. <laughs> yes, yep. totally. Yeah, she is H Town all so, the way. So um, the point of my asking that question is. Um, as a speaker, as a writer, particularly a writer of Bible studies, have you ever encountered the "Hey, um, you're a woman. Why are you speaking about oh. these things? Talking about because that happens a lot in the South." Yeah, like like, it, like Emily's. You know, we used to travel and lead worship, and Emily's face has been cut out of event photos because she didn't have a penis, and wow. in order to be a minister, you have to have one of those. Right, right. I mean, things are changing in the South. But yeah, when we were getting started in ministry, there were spaces I was definitely not welcome to speak in. You know, it was like I I could be a part of the band, but I could not have authority in that 
no, that was the big A word that I couldn't have. Like we had a woman tell us one time, um, I've never heard a woman pray before. That was amazing. On the stage. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, so man, so the patriarchy, that, y'all, I think up here, it yeah. depends on the faith tradition that you're a part of. If you're more mainline, obviously they're used to having more women and um, authority, but not necessarily influence, right? Because we know those are two different things. Whereas when I think of what you just described in the South and different traditions, it felt more cultural versus um, denominational down there. And whereas here, it's much more... Um, denominational versus cultural at large. So it's not uncommon to have women pastors, um, women in leadership, and not just performative leadership, but actual authority. Um, and I I worked in a, I was hired at a, at a sizable church here in the Northwest um, when I was 21 on their, in an executive position. And uh, when I started, I, I was one of the only female pastors, but when I left, it was about I would say 40% women, 60% men. Um, So I think I've chosen to run in circles where um, that's been welcome. And then the places I'm invited to, obviously, they know what they're getting themselves into when they come knocking down my door. So, um, But I've for sure encountered like, hey, this is not your job. This is not your spot. Sit down and shut up. And I think the way that sacred and secular culture have contribute to that is so damaging beyond um, sit down and shut up, right? It's why we don't believe women when they come forward with the truth to tell. It's why me- it, the whole system is architected to have men at the top and white men if you're if you were keeping yeah. track, right? And so the way we order people where it's white men, white women, men of color, women of color, um, I I know that intimately, professionally, spiritually, relationally, socially, financially. Um, and I think that's why it's just so imperative for not only people of faith, but people with a pulse to really wake up and see when we silence half the earth, it's dangerous to the whole, not just dangerous to women. It is. Why? What do you think, and and here's what I want to break down with you because you just hit on it, is we keep saying, you know, when you lift women up, when you lift marginalized groups, when you lift up people of color, we all flourish, right? That's kind of a, it's it's not just a trendy thing to say it's the truth, but when you get in circles like some of mine that feel like very tight spaces for women, um, and it's a very tight space to engage this conversation in, we would have men, um, and even men that I know that would say, how does that benefit me? How does a woman being my pastor benefit me? So how would you answer that? Yeah, honestly, I would take it to scripture. I'd be like, look at Mary Magdalene. Look at the woman at the well. She was the first evangelist in scripture, longest recorded conversation with Jesus. She went back to her hometown. Many found faith in Christ. Men and women found faith in Christ because of her testimony. Look at the early church leaders. It's just undeniable the role of women and how subversive that was for Jesus in the first century when that Greco-Roman influence came into the church. This wasn't a Christian thing to not listen to women. It was a cultural thing that invaded the church. It was this was never part of God's plan. And so the fact that we are like, oh, how could a woman and you know I, I'm with you. I hear this all the time. Like how could a woman lead me? How could my a woman be a senior pastor? How could a woman 
have a place of faith. I'm never going to do a woman's Bible study. You're like, oh, because she doesn't have a penis and wrote it. By the way, I've never said penis on a podcast, and now I've said it twice. So thank there you, Brett, for the permission. Yeah. I feel permission. This is from you. You have permission. Um, <laughs> but when we go back to Jesus, and we see in that first century that women held no weight in court of law, women had no testimony worth listening to, women had no place, no rights, and those were the people he handpicked to advance his ministry. The entire message of the resurrection relied on a woman's testimony. One woman's testimony. Yeah. A businesswoman, no less. So I just mm. I just go back to the good book, and I'm like, you want to mm. play? Let's open. Let's open the book, <laughs> and we'll get down to it, because mama yeah, came to so play. Fun. And I think... I think also um, the way we elevate, I'm going to open this up. I hope that's okay. The way we elevate character and calling, uh, excuse me, charisma and calling over character. If a man comes to me and says, well, how could I listen to a woman? That heart posture is so broken. If there is not humility to open those hands and learn and listen, that, like you said, Emily, they are robbing themselves of growth. They are robbing their daughters and sons of growth. They are robbing their wives of growth. They are robbing their community of growth. Um, Some of the greatest advancements in our time, in modern and in biblical history, have been at the hands of women. Yeah. You know, it's so true. And I think one of the things that makes it so clear to me is in flourishing marriages of Mm. how a whole unit thrives when women are honored and when women are valued. And it may feel to some super fundamental evangelical spaces in the South that, that this kind of patriarchy is helping keep families uh, in order that um, it could, because that's the argument that if we have this top down system of hierarchy, that it just keeps thing in order. If women could just take care of the kids and just stay in the home and just teach children's church, it just keeps things like let, let's not bother her with what's happening in the world. She can't handle it. We need her to be protected. And in their eyes, they are honoring and protecting the woman. Wow. That, yeah. and, and that's the background. I mean, that's truly what they will preach is that that is how they're honoring women by keeping the weaker person protected. And what it robs them of is first and foremost, true intimacy right. with their partner and true intimacy with God. It, it robs authenticity. It robs your children from living a full and flourishing life in so many ways. There is a quiet despair in every woman who feels that she has to hide her essence and hide her glory mm. from her family and from her husband. Um, and it is, it's hiding. It's like, covering with fig leaves all over again because you can't live into your fullness, you know, and therefore your husband can't either. I mean, he never gets the benefit of yeah. his full, of the full essence of his wife, you know, yeah. when that order is set up. Anyway, tangent, yeah. but no, so open well the said. Door. Well, I'm feeling the full benefit of you talking right now and I love it. <laughs> I love I have it. A que- I do have a question though. I want to hear what y'all think about this because this has to do with what you're saying. <laughs> Chivalry. Do you think chivalry Ooh. has something to do with this? Because I'm sitting here mm. thinking, 
when I open the car door for you, it's not because I think you can't open your own door. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's interesting about service and chivalry. Yeah. So chivalry, benevolent sexism, we call it (laughs) versus Uh kindness, right? Which is better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So chivalry still says, I I'm yep. have control. So I think it's a heart posture again. It's I love you and I want to open the door for you, right? Brett, I know that's what you're doing. I know you're not thinking you can't do this for yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's still uh, you know, theorists would say it's still a form of control. It's still a form of control. It's, I'm controlling the situation. I'm ordering dinner. I'm opening your door. I'm deciding where we go. You know, where do you cross that line from chivalry to control? And yeah, so I'm paying for uh, dinner. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. There's just so much control over that. So again, benevolent sexism. It's a right. Okay. Chivalry. (laughs) Kindness is better. Kindness is better. Yeah. Wanting to serve someone out of the love of your heart versus I'm controlling this situation. And still it's an imbalance of power. So how do you separate the two? Like how do you, without going, I'm going to act in kindness. I'm not acting chivalrous. I want to throw this verse to Tiffany because I know she studies the scriptures and there is a verse in Ephesians that came to mind when you were talking that talks about meeting one another according to their needs. And to me, that's kindness. It's asking the other person, what do you need? Not what I think you need. So I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to, but it's asking the other person, what, what do they need? What do they want? I love that it goes back to what you first said about marriage is authenticity. When you're addressing needs and when you're saying, what does it look like for me to be your greatest encouragement in life? The partner, your encouragement. I want to see you thrive. I'm going to give it all to you to everything I can so you can stand up and do what God created you to do. Potential is an equal opportunity employer, right? It's a man and yes. woman. We know that. So if I can help meet those needs. And then in reverse, what do you need from me? And I think that's a question we ask um, every week, every month, every season, every year, because we know it changes, right? Especially if there's kids in the mix and as as they grow, that those needs are going to be different. But I think that is the most beautiful approach to marriage, what you just said. I think that there's nothing more holistic um, than that. If you start there, what do you need from me? That means I'm not, there. that takes the order away, doesn't it? That takes the hierarchy yeah. away when you say, what do you need from each other? Yeah. It levels Ugh. us. It levels us at the cross. I know. It's and it's just isn't that the hardest thing sometimes for us? It's just we just want power so badly. Yeah. We're just all grappling for power. And yep. it's like the way of the kingdom and the way the very essence of Christ is this pouring out. And um yeah, it's just it's a beautiful but hard sometimes things, you know, to grasp. I want to ask you about, um, kind of 2020. And I want to, I just, as a person who has really spent your career writing books, talking about everything from family. I mean, you're, you're talking about, um, on like today, parents, you have blog posts just about adoption and, and, um, inclusion for children. You've got, um, three books out, where in 2020 that has been like this crazy pressure cooker, you've got the podcast, y'all are talking about some really controversial things on the podcast, which I love because it's a beautiful invitation for us to learn how to engage in conversation again. What are you, what are you feeling as a woman, as a woman of color, as a mom, as, um, yeah, a wife, like, 
minister, like, what are you feeling as we're headed into 2021? Yeah. I will be very honest with you. My hair is falling out and I have shingles. So 2020 has <gasps> not been, <laughs> yes. has not been yes. kind. Yeah, it's not been kind. Oh. I think um, I'm the mother of a black son. My oldest is adopted from Uganda. And so walking through this understanding of racial tension and this racial pandemic we're finding ourselves in, um, as many adoptive parents are white in America, if they have uh, African-American children. And so I'm not white and I'm not black, but I'm still walking this out as a mother of a black son. Like any mother, no matter what um, ethnicity or skin color they bear, and so walking through this fear, walking through this rage, walking through this anger that is well, well-earned well anger, I think, on behalf, we should all be angry AF, in my opinion, no matter yes, where yes. you hail from, because these are all of our children yes, that we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, so I think more than ever, I am encouraging myself in my home and in our community, what does this look like for me personally to put it all on the line and do for one what I wish I could do for everyone? Because these are big social issues we've walked through um, as a nation, as the as as a global community this year between the pandemic and the racial tension and strife and you know mass unemployment. All of these social issues just bubbling to the surface, and mm-hmm. I think more than ever we must be reminded that we are citizens of heaven, not citizens of the United States of America. We are citizens of heaven first. Our faith must instruct our humanity, not our humanity instructing our faith. So I would say uh, putting myself in a position to be so raw before the Lord, and what does it mean to walk this out? Because he's spoken contentious times. He's spoken outrageously racialized, tense times, uh, uh, oppressive times. It's no different. It's no different. So as as I've walked through this year, I've ached, I've mourned, uh, which I think is so necessary, again, for all of us. The further we remove ourselves from the point of pain, the less compassion we have. We have yes. to move in the direction of despair. We have to move in the direction of pain, or we will be so numb to this. Um, so... Yeah. Walking this out, even explaining it to my family. You know, I have one son who can pass for white, and I have one son who has dark, 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 dark brown skin. Mm-hmm. And walking out, what does it look like to be men of valor and men of integrity and men of honesty, even if the world is going to look at you and decide who you are, your value, what you bring to the table, and how far you get in life? Mm-hmm. Um, so, walking that out with them to be men of peace, uh, walking that out with my faith community locally uh, on the ground. And then I think the position of influence I have, uh, podcasting, writing, all of those things that really goes much farther than my office, (laughs) than my 10 by 10 room here, using that platform, I have never taken my role more seriously. Um, knowing okay. that when Pete, when I talk, if people are listening, oh God, may they hear your words, may they heed your instruction, because we ain't got time to play. There's a cost to that, Tiffany. You know, and as you just said, well, I yeah, my hair's falling out and I have shingles. Right? <laughs> yeah. There's there's like a there's a cost to running toward the despair. Yeah. Um. There's and it's real, and I think that. Christ would even beg us, consider that, consider what it will cost you so that you're able to go the distance. Um, 
because we really get smacked upside down and all around when we don't consider mm-hmm. and then we run full force into justice and we hit that brick wall of oppression right. and just you know, break our backs because we're running so hard after some of these things. Um, as you, I'm, I'm curious as you've run toward the despair and as you've run toward injustice to hold up truth, um, you are inevitably reengaging some of your own pain. You're inevitably it's exposing, which is why, you know, survive. We're like, Oh, don't do it. Don't do it. This is so uncomfortable. You know, sometimes our bodies try to keep us from the pain. But has there been a part of you this year that's wondered, am, as I'm reengaging his trauma as a black man in the world, and I'm now reengaging what it means for me to be a woman of color in the world, does it feel like a tension as a mom? Do you wonder, am I going to be enough for him? Like, mm. have, you, have you asked, like, as a culture, like for me, and like you spoke to, so many white parents, right, adopt adopt uh, children of color. And the privilege in that alone of is huge. It's And so if my uh, adopted son of color gets pulled over by the cops and I show up, that's one thing. Do you, have you had to confront again and again and again, what is it like for me to show up for him for justice? Is that part of what you're grappling and what you're re-engaging during this yeah. time? And I wouldn't say re-engaging because I don't have a choice to not wear this skin when I go out and about. I don't have a choice. After 9-11, I, I wasn't the only one despising my skin. Mm. Um, so, And I live in a, in a decently diverse area. I live just in South Seattle, um, more affordable part, you know, so it's definitely yeah. a little bit more diverse. Um, and we have a lot of uh, refugees resettled in this area. Um, so I would say that it has been imperative for me to address any trauma that has not been dealt with yet in me because I cannot serve him with an empty plate. Um, so for sure addressing that in me and also uh, mourning the loss with him again, that he, he doesn't have a black family. He doesn't have a mom and dad who look like him and, um, letting that hold space and not trying to gloss over that, uh, which I'm so glad in this day and age, there's just awesome resources for adoptive parents. Like there wasn't 20, 30 years ago. They're just, it's just fabulous what resources there Mm -hmm. are. Um, So really utilizing that and, and putting people in his life who he can ask those questions to. He plays basketball once a week with a friend of mine who is, he's a senior in high school. He's a strong black man into Jericho. He's like, a superhero you know he's my little guy's 10 and so he's just like oh my gosh this guy's oh, amazing and he's got braids and he's cool and he mm. comes in his car and picks him up and they go get ice cream <laughs> so i architect my own little big brothers big sisters over here um i love it I and love so putting putting men in his life where he's like this is what it looks like to be a strong black man in the world this is yeah. what it looks like to see myself as valuable even if others don't so we very proactive about that um and mm-hmm. constantly affirming his identity i often get asked you know what is it, what's the difference between you affirming your child between me affirming my white son and i'm like i don't have to constantly uh, excuse me, I, I'm I'm constantly affirming his skin, you know, when he's feeling like, oh, why am I so dark? Or why do I look like this? And 
why is this my life? You know, why, why, why don't I get to have what other people have a matching family? I'm like, you're right. And I affirm, I affirm these feelings. Uh, yes. Mr. Rogers told us feelings are mentionable yes. and manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, I affirm your story. However traumatic that beginning may be, it is your story. And you know what? Some of this takes time. Some of this just takes yeah. time to own it. Yeah. Um, he's 10, you know? Yeah, and and right. so many of us grapple with our stories at different parts, no matter if we were adopted or not. So really yeah. continuing to be a learner, I think on my part and my husband's part, uh, continuing to pursue therapies that are also beneficial for him. My, my, my little guy's got some significant um, learning challenges. Mm-hmm. and uh, behavioral and developmental challenges and sensory challenges. So getting the help he needs to feel like he can thrive in his own life. Yeah. What is it like for you guys to connect on on the adopted commonality? Oh, for Jericho and I, what a great question. Yeah. Um, he always, to cheer himself up, he's like, I know that you felt this before. He even uses oh. it as like a, I know you know this feeling, huh? He's like, do you ever think about your mom? I'm like, oh yeah. Should we sit down and write her a letter? Do you want to write your mom yeah. a letter? Or, oh, he's like, I bet, I bet you know. So it's it's been wild to see that pop up in him, um, and uh, for him to to just to celebrate those moments. I think I grew up in a home where anytime I brought up like, hey, this is harder. Hey, I'm thinking about my birth mom. I was told, uh, we saved you don't reject us like people rejected Jesus, you know? So I was presented with this whole nother narrative of like, how dare you? How dare you consider life before us? Your story started when we adopted you. So I think having that personal experience as an adult adoptee, coming with that uh, treasure chest, if you will, of uh, experiences and working through that and going to therapy myself and reparenting myself, um, yeah. being able to offer that to him, I think is very valuable. Now, when you met that, the when you when you reconnected with the lady who Prem Prem, yeah, mm-hmm. um, was she able to tell you anything about your birth parents? Like, do you know anything about them? Uh, she said it was a woman who dropped me off. She did say that, and she said she waited two months because she thought this is a sweet little itty bitty baby. Surely, surely that woman's going to have second thoughts and come back for the baby. So she didn't even allow me to be adopted right away um, because she just was so convinced that the woman, whether that was my mother or whether that was her mother or whether that was an auntie, um, she was so convinced that somebody was going to come back for me um, and they didn't. And that's, that's all I have. Wow. I mean, just the desperation because it really is not, um, it is not like a mom unless you are in such dire situations that to to abandon or to give up your child and you know I I wonder if when you started recovering kind of this story and you start writing books and I mean never alone was your first book what how did you gather the courage to begin sharing your story because it's really hard to tell the truth about our story. I mean, was there kind of just even warfare that came against that? Was there, um, or, or did you just feel so solid and so supported and so encouraged that you could begin to write? I think the wild thing with trauma 
that is linked to abandonment and also racial trauma, the thing that is just the most painful is that others don't see its validity. So I had a lot of adults in my life as a child who did not see the validity of my pain. So I went underground with it. And I think, you know, experts will tell you there's there's nothing more traumatic than others not validating your pain. It is outrageously um, painful. It, it's, it just minimizes your existence. You're not a full person yep. because they don't see the pain and the trauma. And you're like, hey, I'm a bleeding heart right now. And you're like, no. <laughs> Just put a Band-Aid on it. You're like, it's a bullet hole. Band-Aid ain't going to work, you know? (laughs) Um, And so I think that was really the opposition of like, no, this isn't a big deal. Like people are adopted all the time. Like get over it. Get over it. I remember, Emily, oh my goodness. I was on a a radio show out of Houston, actually. I was on the night of the Super Bowl a couple years ago because that's when they decided to air this program. And it's a (laughs) Christian program where they interview authors. And it was an hour-long interview, and people could call in and ask me questions. And this woman on the air, on the air, Emily, she asked me, how dare you? How dare you think that this story even has any merit? I'm I'm an adoptive mom. My daughter's 21, and she still has all these aches and pains. Can she just not get over it? So this Ooh. woman came with her own experience on this, you know, on this radio show to... Three million people were listening, y'all. Three million people. And I was just like, I'm so sorry that this has been a painful process. I'm like, there's just so much more going on with them than this moment of her accusing me. But I said, you know, until you see her pain as valid, I don't think you're going to be able to move move on with this. And she's talking about her 21-year-old daughter who she's denying. Yeah. And she's like, I adopted her when she was three. Can she, she's had a gr- I've given her a great life. And I'm just like, oh, man. Yeah. Y'all don't get it. Y'all don't get it. Well, so. and, and hello, narcissism. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> like, hello. Can we just like go yeah. ahead and get her some help? Because yeah. yeah, that is the people who are asking, you know, how dare you? Yeah. And and make By the way, that's accusation. not a question, guys. That's a statement. How dare you? That yeah. is a statement. <laughs> yeah. just, well, just want you yeah. to know your grammar there. Okay. Well, is it though? How it's imperative and and, and oh, interrogative. It's imperative and, and I think oh, it could be you? either. <laughs> I think it ends with a question mark, babe. Yeah. Or How? a period. Or an exclamation point. I don't know. What yeah. about you out there in listening land? If you want to email us and let us know what you think <laughs> about what's <laughs> How Dare You a question We actually are arguing about accusations. A, a, a declarative statement. Hey, I do have a question though. Um, Enneagram number. Three. <laughs> Probably figured that out already, didn't you? Yes. That's what I are you a three? I was Brad? between three. Oh hell no! I was between three and seven. Oh. <laughs> For me, a seven. For you, yeah. Oh no! Well, you're excited. You just have you I know seven. Yeah, sevens. Oh, you know what though? One of my dearest friends is a seven, and I'm like, that's the way. That's the way. They have so much fun. All the, they make a trip to Target for baby carrots. So fun. Do. So I fun. love my seven friends. That's my healthy space. And yes, I am, the I am. Space. I for me for the one, I'm very attracted to that. And I think it's because I can throw out any idea, any hairbrain idea that I am coming up with. And I mean, my seven friends are like, yes. And then you could do this, and then you could do this. I mean, really, the sky's the limit. They well, are and constantly when you're in reframing. your seven space, it is a blast. Yeah, I'm really fun when I'm when I'm secure. Right? Is that where you go when in I get, strength? Is it a seven? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh. 
Yeah. And when I'm in stress, a one moves to that kind of four space. So that's where I write a lot of good music and a lot of good poetry. There you go. And there's a lot of depth in that four space that I really, really love. But um, I, yeah, I, I admire what I think what I was telling a friend the other day, who's a three, what I admire so much about threes is their ability to reinvent themselves. And I don't Mm. mean that in a negative way. Oh, I take that as a compliment. Are you kidding me? (laughs) I am like, it, it is like the first step toward resiliency. Yeah. It's like the tenacity that threes have is something and to do it with community. They don't Mm. do it alone. They're always like reconnecting to people to recover themselves, you yeah. know, and wow, rebuild. I completely and agree. It's like, and that's why in a healthy space, I'm like, the world needs such integrated threes because they, you guys are community oriented, but you're, you're action oriented too. And so you just help move us forward together. It's so beautiful. I love it. So cheers to being a three girl. Yes. I, love, oh, it. Doing good I love it. I love it. What are you, <laughs> Brett? Now I need to know. Uh, what do you think I am? Six. Ooh. <laughs> what are you? Brett hates that. Makes me angry. Oh my gosh. There are it two makes numbers. Angry. There are There's two numbers that I don't touch. So I really have a. I really don't. Are have you a an eight though in real life? You're an eight. I am. I am. Yeah, that was my next guess. I don't touch four, and I don't touch six. And so those two numbers <laughs> are just the most difficult on on a lot of levels to connect with, because I just don't have any sort of understanding except that Um, you have best friends who are fours and sixes except one of my best friends is a six and i'm married to a one who goes to a four in stress so and your other one of your best girl your best one of your best girlfriends is a four great friends who are fours and yeah so yeah i have had to learn how to navigate that so fascinating oh funny yeah all that enneagram talk well as you are about to, I guess, when is your next book, Tiffany, coming out? Yes, March 16th, 2021. And I love that you talked about reinventing yourself as a three because I'm like, oh my goodness, you just like, I feel like you just took down the veil of helping me realize what I have just done with myself. Um, I was in pastoral <laughs> ministry for seven years and then I was found out some things and mm-hmm. then I had a really difficult time speaking truth to power and decided to completely remake my life after that. And that's all what this book is about, is about speaking truth to power and who has power, who does not, and why women are often the ones silenced at the expense of men. Whoa. Well, that sounds like a relevant book for 2021. Doesn't it? I mean, how timely. So what's... What's the hope as you release this book into the world, into the spring? Um, what is your hope for women or men as they're reading this? Do you want, yeah. do you want, did you write it for women? Did you write it for men? Both? Who's your it's audience? written for both. Yeah. It's not written just for women. Um, I, I don't my know want to read it. You I need to read it, Brett. Brett, <laughs> how about the audio? Will you listen? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. I will do that. Did you, did you do the audio? No, I, I, you know what? I don't know that I have it in me emotionally. If, if, if they ask me to, we're, we're still a month or two out from making that decision, but I don't know if I have it in me to be completely frank with you. Um, hire one of those fabulous narrators that you always hear. Totally. Um, you got totally. a great voice though. Just let me throw that out there. Oh, you got thank a great you. Voice. Thank you. Thank you. 
I appreciate that. It's like a one nine hundred number, but I've gotten used to it now. <laughs> Imagine a four year old with this deep of a voice. It wasn't. I know. It was, me too. It was though. awkward. I I got some husk. Yeah, you got some I raspy there. I like it. I I'm here check. for it, Emily. Yeah. I'm here yeah. for it. Um. Yeah. No. My hope is that we would understand the cultural phenomena of silencing women. You know, I, I address everything from Gwyneth Paltrow and Harvey Weinstein to R. Kelly and the women he abused, and how we all went along with it until we watched Lifetime. Um, the women that wow. Trump have abused, the women Clinton abused. Uh, I mean, I I leave no stone unturned. I got to be honest. I'm like, I'm not making friends with this book. I'll tell you that. Um, but I really examine how we have made excuses and we and we've even given men more favor after they've abused their power. So addressing Shoot. abuse of power at yes. large in systems we all find ourselves in, and it's not written as the as the victim um, of somebody who's abused their power. It's written for the bystander. It's like we all find ourselves in these systems, and we feel because something didn't happen to us, we don't need to address it. And in, in church world, we're like, oh, we don't want to be a gossip. We don't want to say nothing. We don't want to do nothing. This is not my business. Um, and the truth is, it's very much your business. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is a responsibility to move that moral arc of the universe toward justice. And here's what it looks like. And here's how we've silenced women historically in the church, uh, in the workplace. And what happens when we allow women to talk? What does it mean to believe women? Because that tagline, believe women, has been hijacked of like, so we need to believe all women who have an unpopular truth to tell against a man. Ugh. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, can you give the same weight in listening ear when there's credible evidence to women like you would one man? And and, and it's right. it's so sad that you know I, I think of even just this past couple of weeks, Carl Lentz uh, um, and all of these other stories that have come out in 2020. Uh, this is not okay, and we have created systems where narcissism is a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. For leadership, for we leadership. have created this, and the patriarchy yeah. protects it. And many of us are puppets, actively and passively. So, yeah, I yeah, try like to hit it from we all like to angles. People a pass and, and excuses. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe he did say that about her, and he did do that to her. But you know what? He's really good at this, and so right. And he did that. That was ten years ago. He did that ten years ago. You hit the nail on the head. We excuse what he's done versus what she said. Mm. Mm-hmm. I am so holding my tongue right now. I want to go ape shit on a lot of things, <laughs> and I'm holding back. I'm just we love Jesus to cuss a little. You know what? Oh, the best of them do. The best of them do. And I just want to know that. Oh, good. I mean, I felt like they wouldn't be surprised. I got to say penis now the third time. This is the first for me. <laughs> you did this to me, Brett. You've made me a maniac. I don't know. I'm just here to invite you into the space of authenticity. <laughs> um, but just want to hit on that one little thing of even what you said is we mine our own brain and experiences for reasons to agree with our first impression. It is in nearly impossible to alter a first impression of someone. And narcissists, what are they masters at? Charm. They're charming. Yeah. We, we'd love to think that we could spot them out of a lineup, and we can't. They're the most charming of all. And so then we get to the end of the rope where they've destroyed everyone around them, and we make excuses because why? They're charming, oh. and they've convinced us um, that we're valuable because it's advantageous for them. Oh, 
Yeah. We had uh, Chuck DeGroat on the podcast. <gasps> oh, I don't know if you know yes. Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote, quote him in the book. I'm a big fan. Okay, good. Yeah. We had him on the podcast. You'll have to go back and listen to it because we, uh, in our abuse series, we had an expert on a topic of abuse and then we had a survivor who talked about, so he talked about the expert of, you know, his book when narcissism comes mm-hmm. to church and mm-hmm. he talked about what oh, yeah. it is. And then we had a survivor, you might know her, Bronwyn Healy from oh, Australia. Yes, yes, yes. You know yes. Bronwyn? Yeah. So she was on um, to talk about what surviving narcissism is like. But it's true for so many women, um, even when we talk about the culture of narcissism and just the, the macro scope of, of a narcissistic culture, that w- what it means to step and speak truth to that culture, mm-hmm. it, it costs you. You know, you're not believed. It's like, no, but this is the way things are. This you're you're talking a foreign language to us. It's like when you come against that type of power, um, the cost feels really great. And I think what you're inviting women into is to kind of say, use your voice. Like yeah. all of us as bystanders are seeing this. You're mm-hmm. not crazy. We've kind of been gaslit, you know. Yes, as yes. Women, we've just kind of been gaslit to to think we're kind of crazy. Like no, that's not the. That's not like there's a voice in our heads. It's like no but they're really a nice person, but the church is really a good church, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, we do that, isn't it? Or is it? And you feel crazy even for asking the question, you know? And so I hope that you're... Yeah. Many of Larry Nassar's victims, they were like, am I being abused right now? But nobody helps her, her, and her. Surely this is just in my head. Surely this is just me, right? I think we just, we make excuses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Pray Tell comes out on March the 16th, you said, which is so fun. That's actually my daughter's, my oldest daughter's birthday. So I'm going to remember that. Um, yes. And what a good book. Is she's a senior going off to college. This may Ooh. be a really great book for her. And it's her. spelled P-R-E-Y. Ooh, hey, yes, oh. it is. Clever, clever. Hey, How'd I- you come up with that? Yeah, go. No, my husband, my husband is oh. punny, punny, punny all day, punny. He has, <laughs> he, he, he was like birds of prey, bur- pray tell. He's like, pray tell. Cause pray tell P-R-A-Y mm. means tell me more. So for the prey oh. to tell. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I was very impressed when he thought of that. Yeah. So in, and then this book, you specifically are speaking, are you speaking to faith communities? Yes, it, it's it's very scripture heavy. It's very theology heavy. Um, but honestly, it so applies to workplace situations and again systems, not just churches at all. There's so many great books on that, and I'm I would yeah. happily direct people to Chuck's book, Ruth Everhart's book. There's just awesome uh, books about that. But this really is addressing imbalance of power in any system we find ourselves in with a Christian lens. Mm, okay. And where, you know, and are you hoping for a book tour? I'm super curious oh, about that. COVID, <laughs> COVID man. I um, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty bummed to launch. A, I mean, I, I've had so many author friends launch 2020 yeah. and it's just, it's hard. There's a lot of loss in that. Um, was hoping for a nationwide tour in March and um, hopefully maybe the fall, maybe the fall. So it'll be a virtual okay. tour. It'll be okay. a virtual tour. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I love it. Brett, you were going to ask a question before I was not going to ask a question. I was just, I'm thinking about the guys out there who are listening, who are going, man, all they've done is just bash dudes. And then 
No, they haven't bashed dudes. And I don't think your book bashes men. And I think guys have got to stop hiding behind. Women are trying to bash us. And maybe do the most manly thing you can do, and that's to get curious about patriarchy instead of being so damn defensive about it. Right. And let's acknowledge... And 90% of men are good men, right? 90% of men are good men. Let's let's enter the conversation with big ears and small mouths so that we can learn and that we can be a part of the change instead of the defense. I'm mm-hmm. I'm done defending I'm just done defending that. There's no yeah. point. And to this it. isn't a feminine manifesto. Um, it is very much, hey, how do we work with men to build a just system? A mm-hmm. just and whole system. Uh I, I got to be honest, the reason I even blew the whistle in the situation I found myself in, because my a male mentor said, I'm going to walk this out with you. You don't have to do this alone. And he said, I'll put my name on the line too, and we're going to walk this out. And so it was just such an encouragement, like, oh yeah, I'm not alone. There's good men mm. out there walking this out. Mm. So um, for that, I am so grateful. Wow. Um, as we, you know, think about the church in 2021, because that's kind of been the other undoing of 2020. I think that, I think all of these, um, injustices and whoo, they've exposed a whole lot in our faith community, the political season. Um, it just has felt what, what, I mean, what, what hope are you holding on to for the church in 2021? What's your hope? Repentance and lament, mm-hmm. honestly, repentance for where we've got it wrong. It's never too late to admit where you've got it wrong, where nationalism has been your king rather than the king of all, where uh, pride or idolatry has played a role that is above your kingdom call. I think my biggest hope is repentance and lament because our testimony and our witness to the world is damaged like it's never been damaged. And there's work to be done. uh, and, And we're his ambassadors and there's grace. There's grace. There's grace for all of us. And I know that might even be like, hey, I didn't do nothing wrong. I didn't do nothing wrong. Like this is, I, I voted for who I wanted to vote or I said what I said. And it's like, man, if we can crucify individualism in the name of the kingdom, I think that's a good place to start. And if we can walk this out for our brothers and sisters at large, um, we'll all be better for it. But my biggest hope is repentance. You know, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, my biggest hope for the church is God's just bringing a revival, God bringing a revival. But the truth is, it never happens. Like repentance always precedes revival. Always. And, And the kind of revival that the church needs and that I believe God wants to bring to the church is absolutely one that is not about a show. It is not about elevating, um, any one denomination. It's not about elevating a country. Um, it is about, uh, humility and it is about love. I mean, it, it, the kind of revival that we need is one that is going to last and love is truly the only thing deep, deep and abiding that can do that. So I I love love that word about repentance. What if humility is is the revival? Like, what if that yeah. is the linchpin? I mean, hello. Yeah. Like, it's where we started, right? Yeah. Like, look at the church. Look at the early church. Like, just that, those kinds of, yeah, that kind of humility is just, it's been lost on us. I think even, Brett, did we have a podcast guest that was even talking about um, linguistics, 
linguistics or studying language and how these um, early formative, this early formative language of like humility and um, meekness and like some of these words, even in our common vocabulary are being lost in the English language. Did you, was that just a different podcast I was listening to? I don't recall I wish I could give, I wish I could give credit to who this was. Um, that's the problem when you just learn a lot, you're like, Mm -hmm. where'd it come from? You're like, did I hear that on a Ted talk? Where did that come from? (laughs) Yeah. But it was just specifically talking about faith in the church. It may have been in a book I was reading, but I, um, you know, I just, it made me think, cause I just thought, you know, we really have as people of God just lost so much of what it means to walk together, to, to bind together in one heart, one baptism, one blood, you know, one love and, and yeah. what that, what that looks like, you know, but it cost us, cost us our pride. It cost us our narcissistic, you know, endeavors. So, yeah. um, well, where can, if we are looking at, you know, people wanting to connect, you know, we can't hire you to come and speak to us, Tiffany. We can't just bring you in everywhere now because it's like COVID is still here and still happening. But are you doing anything virtually? Are there ways that people can follow you, pre-buy your book, connect with you? Um, tell us where to find you. Yeah, you can buy Pray Tell, P-R-E-Y, wherever books are sold. Pre-orders mean the world. They really, really do in the all things mm-hmm. author world. And you can find me on the podcast every Thursday, Why Though, wherever you listen to your podcast, as well as I hang out each and every day on Instagram. That's where you can see the up close, uh, the personal. And I have several um, Bible studies on the Version Bible app as well. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Very good to know. Well, it is such a treat just yes. getting to dive in deep with you and just really, I mean, I go back to just the miracle of what your life truly is and the oh, way you, you began our show, just taking our listeners to, to really look at, wow, what God can do with a life redeemed and, um, and the purpose and intentionality that you have uncovered and unlocked in your life is just beautiful mm-hmm. so thank you uh, for sharing that. your thank story you. i received that Bless it has been work. a joy to chat to you and by the way i feel like in another life you guys could have been therapists because your voice is so soothing brett yours especially <laughs> very soothing well or or host a jazz here's, here's, night here here's next my on thera- the list is <laughs> here's my therapist uh advice and i'm gonna steal it it's stop it Just oh stop my it. gosh Stop it. Have you seen that? It's it's like an old sketch. It's like not even, no therapist says, okay, we'll stop it. No, mine sure doesn't. No. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Hey, let's do this again. And and I feel like we need to just like go. We'll we'll just like top 10 topics and then we'll just like blow it out of the water. Don't you think? Top 10 topics? I don't, you know, I don't know. You mean just like subject, top 10, or yeah, like. Like just have Tiffany on the podcast and just talk about random stuff. We could do that. Random stuff. I can so we tell can she that. could just go about whatever. In another okay. life, I was a food writer. You guys, we could talk all day. We could talk all day. Oh my gosh! All the so stuff curious. is coming up at the end here. Look at this. We could have. We could have like done that way back then. Could have weaved that in. Could have bobbed old that dreams. In. Yep, old dreams. Right. I love okay. it. I well, love let's it. land the plane. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. you. Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. 
For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.